minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. You can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is also being sponsored by TarotByGinger.com. And she's a tarot reader, evidential medium, and psychic. And that's at tarotbyginger.com. And also Alan Questell. And you can find Alan at uncommonsensing.com. And his new book on Amazon is called Intentional Acts of Kindness. And I highly recommend it. And now, without further ado, our guests for today are Jared Murphy. And for the first time, Jim Goodall. Thanks for coming on. Hello. Delighted to be here. And, yeah, and for those who don't know Jim, he's written about like thirty books and a lot of them on Skunk Works and things like that. And um, uh, this could go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's well, true. Been, yeah, I've been digging up stuff on the Blackbird since I first saw it on March tenth, nineteen sixty four. I was eighteen years old, and I was at Edwards Air Force Base to support three programs in Category One testing with, with ground based telemetry. It was the YC-141 Starlifter from Lockheed, the XB-70 Valkyrie from uh, North American Aviation, and a, a classified program from the Lockheed Skunk Works, which turned out to be the Blackbird. Yeah. And, I mean, I know, ex- I know the exact time and place that I saw that airplane for the first time, and I have never been the same. <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's, it's an incredible, they did it with slide rolls. Mm-hmm. That, that's what was amazing. And from signing the contract to first flight, now mind you, it had only been less than 15 years from when Jaeger went Mach 1 in a rocket-powered airplane, and Lockheed was building a titanium and plastic airplane to cruise at 2,100 miles an hour, or Mach 3.2. So, uh, and considering it first flew over, over 60 years ago, it's still an incredible airplane. And I'm... Uh, I, when I look when I look at how I got involved and how deep I got involved in the Blackbird program, it it amazes me. But I do that. I'm uh, I've written books on submarines, but the most fun thing I've done recently, and I did it with Jared, and thank <laughs> God he didn't die on us there. Um, uh, we've been to you know we went to Belize in April, and we uh, stumbled across. Uh, some incredible uh, sites, and we have an opportunity down there. And I'll let I'll let Jerry get into that you know, more deep than I am. But it's uh, it's fun. Well, and it's at seventy eight. That's what you do. You go in and, and play George of the Jungle <laughs> uh, when it's when the heat index is above one hundred and twenty. And it was, uh, but it was fun. We're going back, and we're going to do a lidar scan here later on this fall, early winter. Yeah. And uh, we're in the process of uh, drumming up uh, potential business, and we need to get some stuff, uh, a contract signed, and, we, you know, and we're off and running. Wow. Yeah. This is pretty interesting because, Jim, you and I, 
until I had, for everyone that doesn't know, we don't go over it. Well, I had a heart attack, uh, cardiac arrest. I was dead for he a little bit. He was dead. He was lit. He was categorically dead with six times, seven times. Yeah. Give, maybe eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But 45 yeah. minutes, give or take. Yeah. <laughs> On and off. Yeah. Yeah. I did so, a bunch. Yeah. And we didn't, yeah, I didn't, I mean, I was so thrilled, uh, I think it was day three. He was still intubated. He had the tube down his throat. Yeah. And I'm talking to I'm talking to Michaela, and the doctor's there, and or maybe this was afterward. And, and he said, "Jared, if you can hear me, wiggle your toes." And he did. And he said, "If you can hear me, squeeze your hands." So there, I knew that uh, he he wasn't breathing and heart beating just with his brainstem. His, you know, the rest of that mush in the middle between his ears was actually back working so <laughs> and i and you could i couldn't be i couldn't be happier because he's uh uh good friends and people i enjoy being around are hard hard for me to find and jared is one of those guys so <laughs> i agree I'm, man that's the eight days of like when he was out I was like, ah. well we you know we we met we met by accident he was on with uh was it lynn hurley yeah and I was on, and all of that. we just we just clicked. Yeah. And I had just left Minneapolis. I'm from Minnesota. And Jared said, "Well, I live in Minneapolis." And I said, "Where?" He said, "On Grove Street." And I said, "Well, I've probably been in your building." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I had. He gave me the was it uh, was it two fifty or two thirty four thirty Oak Grove. Okay, or Oak Grove. Prince yeah. Prince had recorded there before it was apartments and. Uh, it's very famous because it's on Loring Park. Yeah, yeah. He had the, he had the, the wrong sexual preference for being on Loring Park, but that was okay. Yeah, <laughs> good thing we're not edited. Yeah. Um, or hey, but I um, it's 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 crazy because we hit it off, and I can't believe it's been a couple of years now. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I know. I, mean, I think I met Jared about three years ago. About. Yeah, Gary, I goes back to when I you're first like, published, and you're one of the first shows I was on as a guest. <laughs> and and then Gary and I, so this is weird, Jim, because before you and I were doing a show together, and it overlapped eventually because Gary and I have been doing, for those that are listening that don't know, Gary and I co-host uh, on Everything Imaginable for some episodes. Mm -hmm. Gary's a monster, though. Jim, he, Gary has like, bulldoze through over 500 how many how many episodes have you done now uh, i think this will be this one will be 561 wow and and, and gary yeah you don't hold back you'll let people go four hours well not really <laughs> no, hey, i've slowed I've down a little bit there <laughs> but i used I've gone, to i've gone three and a half <laughs> and uh, i was with uh, uh sonny conway i was three and a half on his program and it he, we ended and he said, oh, I, we've been invited to another one. So I talked nonstop for six hours. <laughs> and my uh, and I have a, I have a gravelly, gravelly voice to begin with. Uh, I had uh, the day Challenger blew up. I was at Mayo Clinic. And I was uh, undergoing nine and a half hours of brain surgery. And I was uh, under anesthesia for 11 hours. And... Uh, when I came out, I didn't know if I was if they were picking me off the off the operating room table and, and put me on a gurney if I was going to the morgue or going to recovery. 
So it turns <laughs> out uh, it uh, the the surgery was successful, but I was at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And if uh, if you have to get well, that's you know, I can't think of a better place to go than Mayo. So I have a, and then yeah. when my wife was diagnosed for cancer, uh, she went to Mayo Clinic up here in uh, Phoenix. They did a miraculous job as well. So uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to have you know been, have had good medical care and. Jared is blessed to have one good friend and good medical care, and I'm I'm just so delighted he's still here. Yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this took Jim. This took a big chunk. Like we were doing our shows uh, weekly. Gary and I co-host and do, have been doing shows for. Uh, we we started going not too long after we met, right? Yeah, yeah. The the first book I ever got from this podcast was Jared. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and then um, uh, yeah, that book for everyone listening is hopefully going to be re released soon. It's going through an edit, and everything was kind of ramping up towards Belize and our expedition, and and I was trying to be consistent with what you know we were doing for shows, and Jim and I were doing our weekly show and and hanging out and. Then here we are. I kind of, I kind of muddled the waters for everyone here the last couple months, but you know, I well, graduated. He had, he, he had the nerve to die on us. <laughs> yeah, how's that for an excuse? He, he came back, but <laughs> uh, yeah, but not before trying to see the other side. Which, for everyone wondering out there, no, there really wasn't anything. I just was paused, and then one minute I was there, and the next minute I was gone, and then uh, when I woke up. I asked where I was, and that was it. There was nothing in the middle, which I feel that we could milk this a lot better if I would tell you I could see all your dead relatives or something. Hmm. Yeah. No. Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah, really, I'm real bubble popper here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you're, folks. You're talking about getting, you know, getting uh, Jared's first book. Uh, yeah, he yeah, got, yeah, he got yeah, a yeah, copy. Yeah, yeah, that was like the yeah. first book I ever got from a, a podcast guest. My last book weighs five and a half pounds. Wow. It's, it's got a lot of pictures. It's uh, uh, 384 pages, uh, two, two images short of 1,300. And there's about 60,000 words, and they're, they're primarily photo captions. But it gives the, you know, the, uh, the brief history of uh, 75 years of the Lockheed Skunk Works. And... Five of the 11 heads of the Skunk Works, of course, four of them are, have passed away, uh, say that the uh, my Blackbird book and my 75 Years book is, are their absolute favorite books of anything written on the Blackbird or about uh, or about the Skunk Works. So that pleases the heck out of me. Hmm. And, that's really neat, Jim. So yeah. I mean, that's really amazing. So Skunk Works, did he have alien technology? I asked Jeff Babion to his face. I was there on, I was at Skunk Works for book signing on June 3rd of 21. And after we did the book signing, I got a picture of me standing on the X-59 up on the work platform. That's the one they rolled out. That's going to be the, the low boom uh, validation trainer, I guess you call it. And... But we're head, we got finished with that, and we're heading over to Site 2 at Palmdale. That's where they, uh, the U-2 overhaul facility is. 
And as we're heading over there, I, you know, I look, I look Jeff right in the eye, and he's about, you know, two, two and a half feet from me. And I said, "All right, Jeff, how much alien technology, you know, UFO type alien technology has been utilized in our Skunk Works, your Skunk Works programs?" And he, I mean, almost immediately, he said, "None that I'm aware of." And I think he was sincere. He said, "There may be stuff that happened in the past that I have no knowledge of." Because it's you know it's 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 above my uh, classification my security clearance, but my job isn't to look backwards. My job is to look forward. But he said Lockheed's official policy is they do not comment on UFO or alien comments. Period. He said, but personally, it's a big universe. I can't imagine we're alone. So, uh, and I you know I published I published publicized that uh, a couple, uh, three or four weeks after uh, I met with him. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, the media person in charge of the skunk works, all of a sudden, she just cut me off. So I probably, uh, I probably stepped in it when I shouldn't have. But I asked the question, I felt I had to ask the question. And, yeah. And, you know, he, he just said, no, but, uh, there's stuff out there. I I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson. Now it's the largest collection of uh, optical telescopes in one location. There's tw they have 22 optical telescopes, uh, everything from a uh, 12 inch primary mirror to a 13 foot primary mirror on the male. And the Mayall telescope was at, at, when they built it in 1972, it and its sister uh, telescope in Chile was the second largest you know, telescope in the world. Now it's way down the line when, when they're grinding out 27 foot uh, diameter primary mirrors at the mirror lab at the University of Arizona. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a big, that's a big mirror and it takes about a year to make one. And the giant Magellan telescope down in Chile is going to have seven of them. Hmm. And it's at 16,000 feet. And they say that, you know, right now the, uh, the James Webb has now said that, oh, by the way, the universe isn't 13.8. It's 27.6 billion years old. So, at, so I think the next iteration of uh, space telescopes or, or deep, space probes of some sort, whether it's ground-based or, or space-based, they're going to find out that it's bigger than 26 or 27 billion light, you know, billion light years across. So, but it's, it is, it's just fun. Uh, and when you, when you look at, when you look out in the sky at night, and I, I live in, I live in two, uh, the greater Tucson area. I live about 20 miles north of downtown. And we don't have street lights here. We have a uh, a dark sky initiative, as far as the uh, the city of Oro Valley is concerned. And Tucson is a is the home of the uh, uh, dark sky initiative uh, headquarters. And their you know, their goal is to reduce uh, upward light uh, as much as they can, and to reduce it. The city of uh, my mind just went, but Flagstaff. The city of Flagstaff was the first 
city to be certified as a liquid low light initiative. And they converted virtually all their sodium vapor, mercury vapor lights around the town and on, on fields to LEDs and they focused them all, all downward. They dropped their energy consumption by like 60 to 70% and cut, cut their light pollution uh, to about 20% of what it was. Hmm. And it's really, really quite amazing. Really quite amazing what, what you can do. But up here in, in Oral Valley, I, I'm out every night with my dog. We just sit by the pool and I just, I look at the sky. And I'm, you know, I'm a firm believer that we're not alone. I'm a firm believer in UFOs. But I've never seen one. And I've been, out, I've been, out, I've been out in the desert uh, in and around Area 51, you know, for a week or 10 days at a time. And I'm out every night and I, my eyes are going all the time. I'm always looking. And I've never seen anything. And it just disappoints the hell out of me. <laughs> Yeah. I was even at the black mailbox there in Tipico Valley, and you know, all the UFO crazies know about the you know the black mailbox. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, okay, you can read minds. How about if we? Uh, I'm sitting there, and and it was a it was a perfectly clear day, just a sliver of a moon, and it was going behind the you know the horizon. It started getting real dark real fast. It was my eyes hadn't adjusted yet. And I couldn't see my feet. It was that dark. And then my eyes started to adjust. And I'm, I'm saying, okay, if you can read my mind, abduct me. But let me bring my Nikons, or at least, you know, at least my iPhone, so I can get some, <laughs> so I can get some proof. Um, and it, it hasn't happened. At least to my knowledge, it hasn't happened. I don't have any time, you know, times that that are missing from my life that I can't explain. Uh, so. Well, Jim, talk about the, uh, you know, your recent book, you know, you had the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works 75 years come out, but you yeah. also had that submarine book come out. Do you want to mention what that captain said about what went by the ship? Yeah. yeah. Uh, besides uh, writing books on the B-2 stealth bomber, the F-117 stealth fighter, the Blackbridge, which are, which are all stealth aircraft, I've gotten into submarines. And a, you know, a number of my friends said, what the hell are you doing with submarines? He said, so what do you mean? I said, said, it's a boat. It's something that yeah, it goes underwater. What's so, what's so special about it? I said, well, it's black. It's stealth. And it was actually the first stealth war machines. And it's deadly. And 99.99% of the world only sees a submarine sail and maybe the top four feet of its hull. I've been inside 21 nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, I've been to 400 feet deep in one. I have uh, just just prior to this uh, joke of a uh, pandemic we you know we went through. I had. Tentatively be getting the, the thumbs up to, to uh, take take a ride in a Virginia class submarine leaving uh, the overhaul facility at Puget, Puget Sound Naval Shipyards uh, and go from there back to Pearl Harbor. And when they do, when they come out of uh, out of overhaul, the first thing they do is they go to test depth. They'll go up and down for a bit, then they'll go down test depth. And I and I believe on the Virginia class, like that's like twelve hundred feet. Hmm. 
and they then they do various things as they're going up. They'll do an emergency blow from a couple hundred feet. It's usually about 400 feet when they do that. And the place you want to be is in the torpedo room because you come about 40 feet out of the water on the front of that submarine, and then it and then it comes crashing down. And they said it's you have to be belted in because you can't hold on very well. And that's why that's, that's what I want to experience. And I want to and and they also you know practice emergency dry drills and, and fire drills every day. Every single day, there, there'll be some type of uh, emergency exercise. And, and it gets to the point where the guys don't even have to think. When, 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 the, when the claxons go off, mm-hmm. where they, they announce this on the 1MC, you know exactly what to do. And you don't, you don't have to dig in your memory. What do I do next? You've done it so many times, it's, it's a second nature. And it's more so on the ballistic missile submarines because if they ever have to press that button or that's that trigger, uh, it's going to be, uh, that's the end of the world. There's no reason to come home if, you, if, if they have to do, do that and they know it. So that's why they make it, they do it so often that they, they, they don't even know until the, until the exercise is over, well, this was just an exercise. So they're going through all the stuff and everything else as as though it's you know we're going to launch missiles. And the thing about the Ohio boats now they're 560 feet long. The uh, gross weight submerged is 18,000 tons. The replacement form is going to the Columbia, and they're going to be uh, 21,000 tons. So it's a, it's a, a a more robust submarine, but it's not going to have as many uh, launch tubes. You know, it's going to have uh, 16 versus the 24 that the Ohio boats had. And uh, my uh, my 29th book, it'll be out in November, and it's called uh, Nautilus to Columbia class, and I cover all 227 plus nuclear-powered submarines built or under construction for the United States Navy. And it was, it was just a, it was a fun project. I, uh, I sort of started off as a whim and it just sort of like a, like a snowball going down the hill. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jim, what do you think we're going to do with Belize at that kind of uh, curiosity that we're. Um, well, I don't of- know. I don't know how, how we're going to, uh, how we're going to do it, you know, in Belize with the, uh, with that type of technology, but we have we have technology that is used by the military, and you know, uh, and now it's in civilian hands, and that's lidar. And we're going to well, do that. It. But if I put you to task for writing and uh, take the lead on the writing, it's like I think uh, we're going to have a lot of photos and a lot of uh, the kind of stuff we can write on with what we're going to research is going to be pretty spectacular. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're you know, I don't know if if uh, you let the cat out of the bag as far as the uh, what we're doing with the brothers. Uh no, no, not at all. We should still keep it under wraps. Okay, all right. But so, uh, but it's exciting. You still have to. Get, it is, but you you still have to get to what one of those submarine uh, captains saw underwater. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think there were about 600 feet, 600 to 700 feet. They're in the USS Hampton, and I think that's SN, SSN uh, 767. And something went by them in excess 
of 700 miles an hour underwater. They don't know what it was. It made, I mean, it made noise I was passing through or they were able to pick it up somehow, but it went by them at over 700 miles an hour. Now, water, the speed of sound is closer to, you know, 2,000 uh, miles an hour. Uh, it's two or three times what it is uh, in the air. So this thing went by them uh, as, what is scared, the, not scared the hell out of them, it surprised them and they have no explanation for what went by them. So there's stuff down there that we don't know. It's, it's, it wasn't Russian. You know, the thing about Russian submarines and now the, you know, the, you know, the first uh, North Korean submarine <laughs> and, oh their, and their first carrier is the Chinese and uh, North Korean submarines, when they start them up, they can hear them out of the Naval Air Station in Brunswick, Brunswick uh, uh, Maine, I think Maine, or I think it's, I think it's Maine. These these things, it sounds like someone threw a bunch of pots and pans into a, a, a metal garbage can and just started shaking it or rolling it down a hill. He said, "They're they're so noisy. The only the only way they can't make any noise is if they turn the reactor off and they sink it. And w once it hits bottom, uh, maybe it won't make any noise. But other than that, those are the noisiest subs out." Our Seawolf Virginia class and now the upcoming Columbia class will uh, will be the quietest subs in the ocean. They make they make no noise. A so crazy. Yeah, a Seawolf boat. Now there's only three of those: the Seawolf, the Jimmy Carter, and the Connecticut. And I've been on the Connecticut. Uh, they're quieter at 25 knots submerged than a Los Angeles class, which are now being retired, but a Los Angeles class sub uh, uh, is tied up to the pier. That's how effective our, you know, that's how stealthy our submarines are. And the and Russian Navy, Rus the Russian Navy and, and the Chinese Navy and North Korean, North Vietnamese, well, not North Vietnamese anymore, the Iranians, they don't have ASW capability with anti-submarine warfare. And it's just uh, we we have the technology to you know, you know to uh, go where we want when we want in a submarine without them knowing it. Hmm. Were submarines used a lot, like in the um, like in the Iraq wars? Oh yeah, the first the first cruise missiles were fired from uh, submarines, and I think. Uh, I, I had I had the name of the sub and I and it's back here somewhere and it, it, I could probably look it up real fast but uh, uh, no but the first the you know the first salvos of cruise missiles came from submarines and they were I uh, did not know that they were fired out of uh, a, a they call a six eighty eight I it's a Los Los Angeles class improved and when they took the uh, the bow planes off the sail and put them on the hull. They put uh, 12 uh, vertical launch tubes in the, in the bow of the submarines. And that's what, uh, uh, that's, they launched all 12 of them. Plus they can launch them out of the torpedo tubes as well, but they, they didn't. Now the, the submarine to be, to be concerned about if you're North Korean or Chinese and they want to, you know, they want to invade Taiwan or whatever, 
the Michigan and the Ohio are the east are the West Coast boats, and the East Coast boats are the Florida and the Georgia. They took the four oldest Ohio boats that have 24 launch tubes, and they converted them into an arsenal boat that will have uh, 150, 154 Tomahawk cruise missiles as, as its full complement. And they'd be like a, they'd be like a guppy laying uh, laying eggs as they as they launch them out, and they would probably launch them in, in multiple salvos and just. Um, and the uh, the Michigan, not the yeah, the Michigan had uh, was when that some of the tensions in North Korea were going on. Uh, they had the uh, USS Michigan, which is SSN seven twenty seven. It was forward deployed in Guam for 800 days. And one of the things they did, they were uh, on one of their patrols, they were ordered to surface and they were in the Straits of Formosa uh, in between Taiwan and the mainland China. And they get it, they went up there just so the Chinese knew that they had no idea where it was until it surfaced. And then once it, once it uh, dove again, they had no idea where it was going. But we just, you know, to let them know that, you know, you may think, you know, think we have our head up our rears, but we're, you know, we're watching everything you're doing and we do have the ability to put a lot of hurt on you. You may be able to, you may be able to take out one or two of our ships or do some damage in, in Taiwan, but we can obliterate all your major industrial sites with conventional. Uh, no, I don't think anybody wants to open that genie and, and use uh, nukes again. It's just, oh it's, man, it's terrible. It's it's not where it's not where we need to go uh, because because the devastation and the uh, yeah the resulting uh, counterattacks that's the end of the world. Yeah, that's you know that's uh, was it the movie on the beach. When they had a nuclear war, and the, you know the guys finally surfaced in a in a in a I don't know if it was an Ohio boat, but it was a ballistic one of the fleet ballistic missile subs, and they were the sole you know they were the sole survivors, and there were some remote islands in in, in the southern hemisphere that uh, you know, didn't get wiped out due to radiation, but I no one wants something like that to happen. I mean, not even not even the bad guys. And there's there's some now, there's some people in Washington D.C. wouldn't care, but <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, so I, I have I, I've I've been I've been snooping on our government for fifty plus years. If they would have in 1968, I had been out of the Air Force for a year and a half. And I had five years active duty. And I, I wrote Lockheed Skunk Works, Secretary of the Air Force, Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, the Secretary of Defense, and a few others. I wanted eight by 10 glossies of, an, of, S, of SR-71s in the air. And they weren't classified if it was in the air. There's nothing, you know, everything that's, that's classified on a Blackbird is one, it's, it's, it's Intel capability, it's jamming capability, and it's photographic capability. But just the airplane, it's not, it's not classified. And their official policy wasn't to cooperate. 
So because they didn't cooperate, I started digging. The more I dug, the more I found out, the more I found out, the deeper I dug. So over the course of the last 50 years, I have uh, done a really, really good job of digging up everything I wanted to know on the Blackbird program, which has led me into uh, the, you know, the UFO spooky airplane things that go bump in the night community. And it's a community I feel very, com very, very comfortable in. Mm -hmm. And I've had little red dots on my chest. I've known some of the biggest characters in, in the business, one being John Lear, uh, the other being John Andrews from Testers. I don't know if anybody remembers John, but he came out with the sports model, uh, UFO model of uh, Bob yeah. Lazar's back. Back in the day, it came out with the first F-117 model, courtesy of uh, yours truly. And the way I met John is I met him, uh, a buddy of mine from the Air Force Museum, Dave Menard, told him, John Andrews at Testers were looking for someone who knew everything about the Blackbird. And he was getting nowhere with Lockheed. He was getting nowhere with Air Force. And he was at the Air Force Museum, and he's, he had known Dave Menard for decades and Dave said, you know, the guy you need to call is Goodall. He says, if there's, if there's anything to be had on it, on the Blackbird, that's the person you got to talk to. So we linked up and it was almost like how I met Jared. It was, it was just a fluke. Everything, we, we just sort of, con we connected instantly. I'm like, I, I, I told Jared, it was like meeting him. It was like meeting an old friend for the first time. And mm -hmm. I've had a, and in this community, I have had more than a half a dozen experiences of the people I've met that, I mean, I feel, I feel connected to them instantly. Uh, Dave Scott at SOR is one of them. Uh, and, uh, and then one of, the, one of the biggest characters who's, well, hopefully he'll do the voiceover when we need him. And that's Robert, oh. that's Robert Bauer. Yeah. yeah. He, he has a great voice. And, I wouldn't spend yet. <laughs> Robert and I can't, uh, if he calls me or I call him, I know that there's, I'm, I'm going to do absolutely nothing for the next two to three hours, but talk. Uh. And when I was coming back from my road trip, I went on a 5,260 mile road trip in August. I got back on the second or third of September. I left on the 14th. It was gone three, three whole weeks. Um, my car, which is, has a plastic body, but it has 430 horsepower V8. I get 24 miles to the gallon. And I averaged for, for 5,200 miles, I averaged over 67 miles an hour. Cause I was doing 85 to 90 and sometimes a hundred plus. <laughs> Only in his mind. Cause that would be illegal. So be safe. Yes. 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 No, I have, uh, I have a, uh, 2010 Grand Sport Corvette. And that's my daily driver. And I absolutely love it. And I was supposed to give Michaela right in it. Um, he drove up to see us, Gary. Did he? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was Where's on my way. I was on my way to see uh, Michaela and Jared in Salt Lake on Memorial Day when I get a message from Michaela that uh, Jared had a, had a coronary and we're not sure if he's going to make it. She didn't say that, but it was implied. And I didn't think, I mean, when I heard about it, when, you know, when they found him, his, you know, his heart wasn't beating. He wasn't breathing. It doesn't take very long for the, you know, the old uh, 
gray matter between the ears to turn to mush. And my, my biggest con- yeah, my, my biggest concern was that he has a, he has a, an incredible brain and, and that would be a, that would be a shame to humanity if 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 he'd have been brain dead. That's our sound bite, Gary. That's one of our sound bites now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we got to come up with one for Jim, so we'll just make it one big and one for you, and then we'll just make it one giant, like, circle jerk. So one yeah. of the things I was thinking, like, if we have all this advanced technology and weapons, why do we still lose wars? Ben Rich, and I was blessed to have Ben Rich as my friend. Yeah, tell everyone listening who who that is. Ben Ben R. Rich uh, was Kelly Johnson's right-hand man at the Skunk Works and probably the only person who was capable of stepping into Kelly's shoes. Uh, Ben was responsible for primarily for the thermodynamics uh, and the inlet system on the Blackbird. But he said his, his shining example... And probably the most incredible airplane that he was responsible for for being in charge of its design and manufacturing and going into operational service was the F-117 Stealth Fighter. He said that airplane is as strange as that airplane looks. It has no it has no curved surfaces on it. They're all flat surfaces, and it's a. He said, but that's one of the best flying airplanes that. It's ever come out of the skunk works. So you advance the throttles. You don't even have to touch the stick. And at, I think it's at V1 or V2, the airplane just takes off the way it's supposed to, with, you know, without, without any input. So they decided, and I asked Ben, they said, well, why is it that Half Blue and the F-117 were faceted, but the technology demonstrated used by Northrop Grumman, it was just... Uh, Northrop back in the back when they're doing the designing of tacit blue and eventually what gave us the B2 it has blended services he said Ben said we had to get to a point where we had to break the pencil he said four months after we froze the design of the F117 we had the uh, computing capability to design a blended surface or you know a blended uh, surface on any airplane that we make, any low observable airplane that we make. So they decided to take one of the large uh, wind tunnel models of the F-117 and they they modified it to have all the surfaces be smooth, blended surfaces and not faceted. And the airplane, <laughs> you know, the, the flight characteristics of that airplane sucked. And they and they said, I mean, it, they, it wasn't something that they were expecting. They figured it would it would be a, a real smooth flying airplane, but it wasn't. So it's uh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what can come out of the man, the minds of man. And the other thing that's really amazing is on the Blackbird, they did that from signing the contract to first flight was thirty two months. And they designed and built that airplane using slide rules. We didn't have computers back in 1958-59. Hell, we didn't have computers worth the squat until the 90s. And everything they did was on the. You know, my dad had one. He was, you know, he for a while he was a professor at Stanford on postgraduate engineering, and he had his supercomputer. It was a 
I think a K&L, I think was the manufacturer, but it was like a 32 or 34 inch slide rule. It had a magnifying uh, glass on the slider because the numbers were real small and he can, he could do incredible you know, calculations on that thing. He did most of them in his head, but, uh, but from signing a contract to first flight was 32 months. The Air Force cannot change the paint scheme on a C-130 tactical transport in 32 months. And uh, it's, exactly. it's just something that Skunk Works has the capability of doing. Now, on the F-35, uh, I saw the Ironbird version of the, F-30, the X-35 in August of 1990. Let me see. Oh, that's almost 25 years, 24 years. And it's not, it's still not fully mission capable. Their software is, you know, they have more lines of code used on the F1, uh, used on the F-35 than any other airplane or machine flying today. Um, and Ben Ritz said, when you're building, when you're building something like the F F-22 or the F-35, the hardware, you know, the physical stuff you can put your hands on, you figure the, you know, the price of the airplane is, it's about $400 a pound. But when you add in the software, it's like $4,000 a pound to develop the, the software. So if you have a, you know, if you have a 50,000 pound airplane, times 4,000, that's, that's a lot of dollars. Um, and he said, all it, all it takes is, is someone to, you know, to flip a one for a zero or a zero for a one, and you could have a disaster. And they're, and they're finding all sorts of bugs. I know when Microsoft first came out with, uh, was, uh, was it Windows 95? <laughs> I, I had a buddy of mine at Intel. He's a chip designer. He said they went through it when they announced the you know the Windows ninety five. They found found over seventeen thousand bugs or problems in that in their in that software package that would the circumstances from finding them would be very difficult. I mean they weren't none of them were obvious, but the get the development people who have the the big computers that can go in and, and, and analyze what's gonna happen. Uh, came up with, I say, 17,000 errors or bugs in that software. But the other thing is, uh, one, of, one of the things that uh, Bill Gates is, is good at is, you know, he, he develops a, a product and then he develops a virus for it and <laughs> doesn't tell anybody, but then, oh, you know what? We have a solution for that. So I'm going to sell you something. It's going to get a virus that we've sort of helped create, but we have we have the cure for it. <laughs> so that's why I have a Mac. I've been a, well, I've what been... do you think, Jim? What do you you know? Gary's Gary's question a minute ago about uh, I know it's subjective as this, but do you think really then with Lockheed and with all the tech and everything you know, do you really think there's a reason for us to lose anything? No. No, not at all. The uh, one one of the things that that Ben Rich told me just before he passed away. Now I, I, I talked to him once a quarter for twenty plus years. He either called me or I called him, and he was uh, 
I knew he was battling esophageal cancer, and I called him up. Uh, he was a uh, UCLA Medical Center, no, USC Medical Center there in L.A. And we were talking about our old friend, John Anderson Testers. He had just passed away. And Ben told me, he said, Jim, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. And trust me, I can comprehend a heck of a lot. And if you've seen movies like Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. I said, Ben, you want to expand upon that? He said, no. And then the, the son of a had the nerve to die on me about 10 days later. But earlier, earlier than that, I think, you know, I think it was in 93, shortly after he retired, uh, he was a keynote speaker at the, the Graduate School of Aeronautics at UCLA. And in his prepared text, one of the, one of the, the sta statements he made, he said, today, we have the ability to take E.T. home. Now, think about that statement. Now, this is 20 years ago. Yeah, 20. No, 30. Excuse me, what the hell am I talking about? 30 years ago. That's new math, I guess. He said, we have the ability to take to take E.T. home. Now, just think of what he's saying. This is 30 years ago. Uh and he said, but our government will now not allow us to release the information or to use it for the, for the public good. And it's just, it's criminal. But on the other hand, we may not be in control of the dissemination of that information. It may be controlled by the other guys or the aliens or whomever, you know, you want to identify them as. I don't think we're in charge. But the other thing is, there's been some reports recently, I think the, uh, I remember Tim Burchette out of uh, Kentucky made a comment just, uh, this is after Dr. Greer's uh, disclosure event in June. He said that uh, he has seen some stuff. He won't say what he saw, but he said, trust me, you don't have you don't have the stomach for it, so whatever it is, I don't I have no idea, but it had to do with either what what the aliens are capable of doing or what you know what they look like. Now talking about aliens, was it yesterday or within the last forty eight hours? Mexican that, mummies. That, yeah, they came Peruvian. Out I'm sorry, Peruvian mummies. I didn't, I have, I didn't, all I saw was the, uh, the text part and I didn't read much of it, but I did look at the images. And the thing is only what, 14 or 18 inches, uh, long. They say it's, uh, probably a child or an infant. And uh, they get it, they get an x-ray of it and it has, uh, I mean, there, there's internal organs and structure inside of it. So is it real or is it Memorex? I don't know. All right. Memorex. Yeah, yeah, you got to be whatever happened. One. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we don't but, use tape anymore. Yeah, it's just ones and <laughs> Gary, zeros. Did, Gary, did you see those mummies? No, I didn't see them. They're they're there's they're all over the Daily Mail, uh, Google. It's coming up. Uh, uh, there's and there's been a disavowalment from the U.S. government, and it and it's a they're Peruvian mummies, and they're said to be at least a thousand years old. 
They have three fingers, and they look like they look like aliens. They, and they look like ET in the movie. If you if you put a body on them, long you know, big eyes, big head, small mouth, long arms. They look uh, pretty classic alien looking. Yeah, yeah. But so. they're uh, they're the 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 big thing about this was that it was an, an actual meeting of the Mexican government. And these bodies were presented as evidence hmm. uh, to the Congress of, well, however that works, of their government. Yeah, they're way more open than ours. Well, wouldn't it be interesting? But they're Peruvian mummies presented to the Mexican government publicly, and the American government's having a fit right now, and saying it's not real. It wasn't me. They're pulling a full shaggy. Well, they don't think it's real. Yeah, but wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting to find out that it's not an X-ray of a of a giant rat? Why yeah. Why would it not be real? There, there. You know, we don't have any any. There's no data. There's no. We don't have any testing or DNA evidence of anything yet. We just have very alien-looking mummies that anyone can go find right now on the Daily Mail or wherever. All kinds of stuff comes out of Peru. Oh, absolutely. But the fact that this actually made, that these mummies made it all the way to a Mexican uh, uh, full state government uh, congressional meeting is pretty spectacular. Hmm. And that's why it's made the news the last couple of days. And I've been watching. I reread it again today, too, Jim. I just like, it's kind of crazy that it at least made it to a government head. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the other thing that's just absolutely crazy this week, a group of, uh, what the hell you call them? Uh, oh, my mind just went, just went blank. They're, you know, the, the ability to, uh, I'm a little bit stressed right now uh, with, with the wife uh, and her brain cancer coming back. Uh, so, Hey, we'll mind. cover for you. My mind isn't functioning the way it normally is, but uh, there's a there's a group of guys there. You know, they. Uh, I remember when the heck I had that in. We're talking Peruvian mummies. Yeah, oh, wait. but no, no, but they were. You know, they were. Uh, they had they had some. Come on, I don't even know why my brain isn't working. They were they were able to they were able to uh, they were given they were given a coordinate. And they were told to uh, see what they can see. A so remote view? Remote viewers, yeah. And why why that wasn't coming out, I don't know. And there were five of them. And this the, these guys are all military trained, and they have a they have a, an organization that uh, that is reputable, and they do uh, remote viewing for all sorts Jim, of clients. Jim, not to interrupt normally, but Jim Gary's done the training. Yeah, I took the um, training with. Um... Dave Morehouse. Okay. okay. I'll explain that one for from from, yeah. from from SRI. Okay. Yeah. Well, well these amazing. these guys they they had five or six different ones. They gave them the coordinate. It was a double blind uh, test, and the subject was Bob Lazar and S four, and they had no idea what they were looking at, and the amount of information there there's there's like over 300 pages of notes and 
and drawings of what they were what they were seeing in their remote viewing. And it's it's absolutely mind boggling. And they and they uh, uh, Robert Bowers knows all you know all those uh, you know all of them. Uh, Dax Smith, I think, is one of them. And they, uh, they said we need to get we get we need to get this to Bob Lazar. So uh, uh, Robert told me about it, and yeah, you know, I've known Bob for before he went to work out in the desert. So I I sent it to I sent it to someone I know who would give it to him, and uh, the guy is a gentleman in Montreal, and he he's seen the information and he's blown away by it. And apparently he's going to physically meet with these uh, these gentlemen here uh, when Bob gets back from Switzerland. So it's uh, but they were able to uh, identify where he was at, what he was doing, uh, the you know, the equipment, the location, everything. It was absolutely just it was spooky. It was so real. And both Robert and I, as we're going through, I, I, I've only seen, I haven't seen the two and a half hour uh, uh, overview of what uh, what transpired. And there's, you know, I'll say there's hours upon hours of uh, uh, supporting documents and, and uh, comments by the uh, remote viewers that, that are, you know, I think you have to be a client of theirs to see it all, but they've made it public for Bob to see it. And it's really exciting. I mean, I have I have felt that Bob Lazar was real from the day I met him. And the day I met him, I met him because of John Lear. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, in uh, November of 88. On the 11th of November, they announced the existence of the F-117. And on the 22nd of November, they announced the existence of the B-2 stealth bomber. And in Jan the first week of January, I called up Lear, and I'd known Lear since 73, 74 time frame. And I said, hey, I'm coming. I'm flying into Vegas. I'm renting a car. Let's, uh, you and I, go see if we can, get, we can uh, photograph an F-117. So I fly into Vegas. I pick up John. We're heading up north on US-95. Uh, we're just... A we're about 15 miles north of Scotty's Junction, which is about halfway, about two-thirds of the way to from Las Vegas to Tonopah. And an F-117 flies right over us at about 1,500 feet, you know, about a 45-degree angle of the road. And I about crashed the car. We got in Tonopah. We grabbed a quick bite. We headed out US-6 for 14 miles. The big sign says Tonopah Test Range. So we head down that road 18 miles. Now, I'm a retired master sergeant from Air Force-like, and I can get on almost all bases, but I can't get on when it's restricted. So we drive down the fence line about two miles to the west, and you can look down, you can see the entire complex. And I look to the north, and there's a little black fuzzy ball with a light underneath it, probably 15, 18 miles north of us, on a long final. And then another little... Uh, bluish yellowish ball fuzzy ball with a light so i figured that was an f117 with uh, a uh, chase plane and i had i was shooting with nikons but this is before digital cameras and 
I was so I was and normally I shot Kodachrome, either Kodachrome 25 or Kodachrome 64, and you can't beat those as far as images. But I had Kodacolor 100. So we go to the fence line. I have a 200 millimeter, a 70 to 200 millimeter Nikon lens. So it's, I have good glass. And this this airplane's coming towards me, and as it's filling up my viewfinder. All of a sudden, my body starts vibrating like I'm a 10-year-old boy seeing a naked woman for the first time. I mean, I could not stop the shaking. I mean, and it was, it was I was going about 60 cycle, too. It was just, it was unbelievable. So I went through the, the roll of film. I said, John, let's get the heck out of here. Let's get down to uh, Las Vegas so I can find a photo mat. And you have to have gray hair to know what a photo mat is. And that's... Uh, uh, they used to have them in parking lots and of, uh, in shopping centers and, and malls where you'd drop off your film. And it was a it was a ye yellow, orange and red uh, building about 10 by 10. I think they've been taken over by baristas. But you used to drop your film off. You didn't even have to get out of your car. The, the guy would hand you a, an envelope. You put your name on it. You tear the tag off, put your film in it and give it back to him. Come back the next day or two days later with print, you know, your, your film processed. But I knew that we were not going to make it back to Las Vegas in time to get, you know, to get to a photo mat. So it means I haven't waited another day or two to, you know, to get the film back. So we stopped at Little Alien on our way uh, back to Las Vegas, had a quick bite. And we got back to uh, Las Vegas. It's, it's after nine o'clock at night. And it's about quarter after nine. We get to Lear's house. And uh, he said, hey, I got, a, I got a new friend. He just moved here from Albuquerque. He's, he's been interviewing for a job out in the desert. Uh, he's waiting for his uh, queue clearance to be upgraded to, uh, to allow him to work wherever he was going to work. But he, he's, he's on his way over. So about 15 minutes later, he was knocking the door. And this nice-looking, very soft-spoken young man comes walking through. You know, he comes in into Lear's study introduces himself as Bob Lazar. And he said that he'd moved here from Albuquerque and uh, he doesn't know what he's going to be doing, but he'd, he'd been interviewing for a job out in, uh, out in the desert. So I told him about my dilemma about the, uh, the film and the fact I have F-117 shots. And I said, I have to wait for a day or two to get the prints back. And he said, well, I have a C-41 processing unit at home. I just jump. I said, I live on West, over off, off of West Charleston. Let's run over to my house. Let's get it processed, and let's see if anything turned out decent. Said, so sounds good to me. So we jump in his car. And we're about a block from Lear's house, and, and Lazar looks at me and he says, "You know, I feel sorry for that dumb son of a bitch, Lear." I said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Jack asked me, the asshole. Believe, he believes in UFOs. How stupid is that? I mean, his father is a world famous." Avi you know, aviation guy, he brought Learjet to the world, not counting all the electronics for, you know, using aviation. And he said he believes in UFOs. He said, Jay's, he said, said, I'm a nuclear physicist. He says, if I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. And you couldn't put a gun to my head to convince me that UFOs were real. This is, what he, this is what he said before he went public. That he didn't, I mean, he honestly did. And I asked him again when I was visiting him uh, in this last uh, May. 
I said, do you recall what you told me in John, you know, when, you, when we left John's house and we were heading to your place to process my film? And he said, yeah. He said that UFOs weren't, weren't real. He didn't believe in UFOs. And he said, yeah, I remember saying that. So it wasn't something that I wanted to imagine. It was something he actually said. And the other thing about Bob, Bob has a photographic memory. Not a good memory, but a photographic memory. So everything he read and everything he saw on the sports model UFO, he knows exactly what the dimensions are, what the materials are, and how everything goes together. So is, is something going to come out on something like because of that? I don't know. But he did, he did tell me that there's going to be a, an event sometime, hopefully this year, and it'll either blow everybody out of the water or it'll be a total disaster, one of the two. And I don't know what, I sort of think I know what he's talking about, but I really don't. So uh, if it has to do with you, if it has to do with you, with UFOs, um, it, it will be, it will be front page news. Hmm. I hope that one day they just reveal that we actually have the craft. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's not like people don't know. It's not like a secret anymore. Just show us. Yeah, and and you know, I uh, a friend of mine. He since passed away. He was an SR seventy one pilot. His name was Dave Fruhoff. And I was visiting my dad. My dad was director of engineering at the Arnold Air Force Station there in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And he was uh, responsible for getting one of the your big uh, high-altitude uh, rocket engine chambers up and running. And I was out visiting him. And when uh, Dave Fruhoff retired, he, he retired in uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee, the home of Jack Daniels. It's also a dry county. You can't buy any liquor in, in that county. But I called him up and said, hey, uh, can I come by and give you a visit? And he said, sure. And the reason I wanted to visit, get, a, get a visit with him is he was a student pilot in an SR-71 that had a total electrical failure. It was a trainer, 957. And uh, they had uh, they lost the airplane because of it. They punched out about five miles north at the end of the runway. It happened over Montana, and they couldn't land at Glasgow, they couldn't land at uh, Francis E. Warren, or uh, even Spokane near Fairchild because of weather. So they came back to Beale, and the tech order said that the engines, with total electrical failure, which is not supposed to happen on both, both motors, both generators went out almost at the same time, he said, the engines will suck the fuel from the fuel sump. So as long as you're going straight and level, subsonic, it's all going to flow in there. Everything's going to be fine and dandy, which, which was correct until they dropped the landing gear. This is a double delta airplane, and the, and the nose pitches up. When the nose pitched up, the sumps emptied out. Both engines flamed out. And the first thing that happens on a Blackbird, it's upside down in a flat spin. So, yeah, uh, the IP and Dave both punched out. Both guys made it okay. It crashed upside down in the middle of a chicken ranch, uh, five miles north of the uh, Beale runway. So that's what I was <clears throat> interviewing Dave for. 
so uh, we'd finished the interview, and I said, hey, Dave, so you believe in UFOs? He said, absolutely, positively, they do exist. Oh, he said, you want to expand upon that? He said, I thought he figured, said no. He said, sure. So I said, okay, what happened? He said, I was on a night mission out of Kadena, Okinawa. Uh, this is the uh, late 72, early 73. Vietnam was still an issue. He said, I'm, he said, I'm at 78,000 feet at Mach 2.7, which is sort of a sweet spot for cruising. You get really good gas mileage and you don't thermally stress the airframe or its systems. When you give above Mach 3, you do. So he said, it's 11 o'clock at night. It's a three quarter moon off to his left and he's, everything's, everything's working fine and dandy. And all of a sudden he gets a glint off of something. Five or six miles off to his right, five to six thousand feet above him. And he, 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 he didn't want to open his visor or let, op, completely open it up, uh, to see if he could see the, how many stars were blocked out so he can sort of get a shape. Said it wasn't round. It had edges to it and it was reflective. He didn't know what color it was, but he contacted Kadena. Uh, on secure voice and asked, do we have another, you have another bird up here? He said, no, you were briefing this morning. You're the, you're the only one up. And he said, no, I'm going to go take a closer look. So he advances the throttles. Now at, at Mach 2.7, you're doing about 1,850 miles an hour. The throttle is almost out of afterburner. I mean, it's all the way back. Like he's, uh, you know, he's idling more or less in, in burner. And he uh, uh, he pushes the throttles up about a 10-degree bank, and he's climbing towards this object. And about the same time, his backseater said, Hey, Dave, it looks like we have company. He said, Yeah, I'm going to go take a look. And he said when he was still a 1,000 or so feet below it and still probably a mile or so away from it, <clears throat> this thing took off on about a 30-degree angle of attack and left him like he was heading the other direction. He said that uh, he lost it going between between 180 and 200,000 feet, and he calculates the the speed that he left. It was going between Mach 12 and Mach 16. And uh, you know, one of the things back in the 70s, you didn't report stuff like that. I asked my boss, uh, Major General Wayne, Wayne Gatlin. We were in a staff meeting, and I was I was an NCO. I said, General Dallins, I got a question. Let's assume, just for the sake of uh, this conversation, that I'm a I'm a I'm a pilot of, of uh, an F-4 Phantom, and I encounter a UFO during a training sortie or even during an operational mission. What do I do? I tried to chase it, and every time I try to lock on with my weapon systems, it would die. He said, the best thing you do is you come back off your, off your, you know, off your sortie, you do your debrief of what actually you, you were up there for. Then you go to the club, get a couple real stiff drinks, slam them down and go back to your billet and forget what you saw. <laughs> because in, in 1972 or 73, that would kill your, that would kill your career. It was that way up until probably 2015 that it would kill your career. Now it seems like, well, 
there's too many of us up there seeing stuff. So I guess we can't. Everybody has a little magic thing in their back pocket or their side pocket. It's called a smartphone. And it has incredible, you know, photographic capabilities, especially if you're close to it. And, you know, you're flying, you're, you know, you're in up there with an airplane. So he's, yeah, General Gatlin says, you know, you don't, you don't say anything about it. You just walk away and just forget about it because it, it will destroy your career. So, uh, so as, as luck would have it, when he retired from the Air Force, as Dave Fruhoff, he retired at the end of 79, he had, a cube, he had an active cube clearance. And those things are hard to get, hard to find, and, but very valuable if you want to stay in that particular community, this, you know, the spooky community. So he ended up in you know, sort of a roundabout way becoming the facility manager at Area 51. And I asked him, I said, okay, you know, you had... Uh, Five years at Area 51. Uh, where do they, where do they house the, house the UFOs? And he said, there weren't any at Area 51. And I asked because I chased one. And you have to be very, very careful who you ask that question to because even if it's something you've known all your life, all of a sudden you're asking questions that you shouldn't be asking about a system that you have no clearance to talk about or to see. They can pull your clearance. And if they pull your clearance and you work in the spooky world, you're out of a job. So uh, the guys he talked to, he said, you know, uh, no, no, we have we don't have anything like that. We don't have anything, especially uh, back in the early 70s, that could leave a blackbird in the dust. So that's one of many Air Force pilots or military pilots that have encountered UFOs. And the fact that he ended up at, as the facility manager Area 51, that's the one location that would, if there was something like that going on. But then uh, he he did talk to some of the guys uh, who fly the red and whites. That's the Janet flights. Did you ever run into a guy or hear of a guy named Lazar? He said, yeah, there was a Bob Lazar that was on the airplane you know, a number of times. Uh, the other thing that George Knapp dug up was Bob said he worked for Sandia and he was a weapons, he worked in the weapons design group. Bob said, I worked in such and such a, 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 a lab. This is my phone number. This is the lab. This is the room number. So George went to Albuquerque. And again, this is George Knapp when he was investigating Bob Lazar, whether he's real or not. And you know what they found in the, in the phone book? They found a Robert Lazar listed in the phone book. And the guys he said he worked with were listed there. Bob also said that the Sandia uh, newspaper had a uh, full-page uh, article on him. It said, Sandia professor relaxes on weekends going 300 miles an hour in a quarter mile. He had a jet-powered drag car. It had a Lamborghini Countach uh, body on it. Mm -hmm. So here's a picture of Bob in the newspaper, Professor Bob Lazar at Sandia with Bob and his Lamborghini behind him. How, how, could, he, how could he fake that when he didn't know that George was going to be going down looking, you know, looking for background information? The other, the, the other thing that was really quite telling I had Bob's W-2, and he was paid by the Navy, a department of the Navy. And I couldn't find the department that uh, had paid him. 
and I was activated. Uh, now I had five years active and I was out 10 years. And then I went into the Minnesota Air Guard and I ended up as their wing historian. And I was also in state staff for Minnesota Air Guard. And when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, I, I figured that was a way out. I had a, uh, I had a fatal attraction girlfriend that was stalking me. And I volunteered to go to Saudi Arabia for a year just to stay, get her, stay away from her. So I volunteered to go on a Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And I had 121 days of service uh, there in the Pentagon and in, in Guard Bureau in, in, uh, there in Andrews. And this one particular day, I was, things were kind of quiet. And, uh, and I had a couple hours. I had not, literally nothing to do. I, I wasn't given any briefings. My job was to go through all the briefing and all the messages going to and from CENTCOM from eyes only on down. Um, there was only, I was looking for stuff. I, I would look at the aircraft call list the type of aircraft and their call signs. I'm looking, I'm trying to find something that I don't recognize and I can't find anything. But I had Bob's W-2 in my back pocket and I was a, uh, at the time, I was a tech sergeant. I was an E-6. I had my light blue uh, short sleeved shirt on and uh, your dark, you know, uh, Air Force blue pants. So I'm, uh, I've, I found something that was close, and I think I think it was Naval Investigative Services. I don't. I, I'm, it's been thirty over thirty years. I don't quite remember the exact room, but I went in there, and there was a young uh, Lieutenant JG behind the desk, and I said, "Sir, can you t tell me where this Department of the Navy is located?" And I hand him uh, Bob's W two, and he looks at it, and he says, "Excuse me, Sergeant," and he gets up, he walks into this two stars office. He's in there 15, 20 seconds. He comes out and he says, the Admiral will see you now. Now, those of you who have been in the Navy or been in the military period, the fact that a two-star Navy Admiral will talk to an enlisted Air Force slash Air National Guard puke is pretty amazing. I mean, they really look down. I mean, he... Back in the days, you know, you, you didn't even, even in civilian times, you didn't, you know, you could hardly talk to a Navy admiral if you were an Air Force enlisted guy. So I go in there and I give him a real sharp salute. <clears throat> and he doesn't say at ease, he said parade rest. So I'm standing there rigid and he's looking at Bob's W-2 and he is, he is absolutely furious. He said, Sergeant, I don't know where you got this. But if I ever see your face cross the threshold of my office ever again, you'll be the most sorry son of bitch and NCO in the United States military. Do you understand me, Sergeant? I said, yes, sir. And with that, he puts Bob Lazar's W-2 in the shredder, and he said, you're dismissed. I gave him a sharp salute. I do about face, and I walk out of there and said, woohoo, that was exciting. If Bob was a nobody, if Bob wasn't who he said he was, I would not have had that experience. That's so, a good time. That's another good, all good time of you yeah. uh, living on the edge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Lear and I used to have, I, mean, I'm, I, I was, at one time, I was very, very well known out in the desert. And a good example, in 1996, uh, I'm in, in Vegas, Tonopah Test Range, uh, is in caretaker status. They moved the F-117s to Holloman. 
But I wanted, but I, I'd heard that they had just put a brand new high-tech fiber optics communication system at TTR. So I figured it's something, there's something going on down there. So John Lair and I <clears throat> were at the fence line. It's 11 o'clock at night. We both have generation one uh, night vision goggles on. We have our lawn chairs. And of course you tape up your pant legs with duct tape. So the scorpions don't crawl up your leg and, and you know, and bite you where you don't want to be bit. And we're sitting there and we see three armored personnel carriers coming. Now we're in public lands. And the uh one's coming up from the south, one from the west, one from the from the east. And I stand up and yell real loud, hey, we're good guys, we're taxpayers. And all of a sudden we have floodlights on us. I have three little red dots on my chest. John has three little red dots on his chest. There's a vehicle coming down the our side of the fence. And this guy comes walking around uh, Lear's pickup truck with his hand on his Beretta. He has, uh, he's in desert utilities. He said, you're in a restricted area and I'm ordering you to leave. And I said, sir, I don't know who you are, but this is public lands. I don't need your permission. I told you you're in restricted area and I'm ordering you to leave. I said, well, according to my, my government issued aeronautical map that gives the restricted area longitude and latitude to the second, says, I'm in public lands. I don't need your permission to be here. As a matter of fact, I can be here for 15 consecutive days without asking anybody's permission. I've been deputized by the state of Nevada uh, to uphold the laws of the federal government, Lincoln, Esmeralda, and Nye County. I said, well, good for you. He said, uh, I, says, I said, who are you? He says, well, I'm Captain so-and-so with ASI, Advanced Security, Inc. I said, sir... You're rent a cop. You don't have jurisdiction on this side of the fence. And you can just see his jaws tightening up. I want to see some ID. I said, I don't have to show you squat. And he's getting really, really testy. And I could, I could tell we was, we're getting to a point where he's, uh, he, he's not going to be too kind. So I said, tell you what, you show me yours. I'll show you mine. So he hands me his ASI badge. And I said, sir, that's not a valid form of ID. I need something issued by the state or federal government. And I gave his ID back. And I mean, this, he's almost trembling. I mean, you could, you could see just how furious this guy was. So he pulls out his Nevada driver's license and I look at it and I lived in Minnesota and I pulled out my Nevada, my Minnesota driver's license. I handed it to him. John handed it to him. And he hands it to a guy on the south side of the fence, goes up to the supervisor, turns the interior light on, and I hear, oh, shit, it's good all in Lear. The lights went off, the red dots went away, and they knew they weren't going to intimidate us out of the area, but we also knew they weren't going to do anything that night. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I've been, I've been a pain in the ass to them for a long time. When, when I, uh, Ben Rich called me in August of... 89 to tell me that the Blackbirds weren't going to make it through Congress. He said, if anybody can scrounge one, it's you. So I, uh, I, uh, I immediately, uh, called the adjutant general of the state of New York, General Weaver, called his office. Now, the, in the Air Guard, you can violate the chain of command and you won't get in trouble. And there's only three levels. You have the, the tag or the, the adjutant general. You have the wing commander. And then you have either your boss. And then you. So it's only three layers you have to go through. And I just bypassed everybody. And, and I had uh, 
called General Weaver's office and the secretary answered the phone and said, yes, ma'am, this is uh, Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd, which was the Minnesota Air Guard 133rd Airlift Wing. He said, is General Weaver available? Just a minute, Sarge, I'll put you through. So General Weaver gets the other, on the other, you know, lifts up the uh, phone and said, Sarge, how can I help you? I said, sir, I have a question. How would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? Quiet for about 10 or 15 seconds. He said, you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. He said, when you're ready, you call Will Hall. So I managed to scrounge not only the eighth production CIA version of the Blackbird, the A-12, but I also two C-5s to move it. And when Pratt and Whitney was trying to get a Blackbird to put on a wind vane when they were retiring them, you know, they're at West Palm Beach where they, where they make the engines, the J-58s. Uh, they asked uh, Air Force, could we lease a C-5 from you to move something? They said, sure. It's about a million dollars a day. I think it's $968,000 a day plus gas. I scrounged two C-5s for eight days each and total of 24 crew members. And it was all, it was all put together for uh, training for moving outsized cargo. But as part of that, we, uh, we actually loaded the Blackbird, my, my A-12 as I call it, uh, into the C-5. We had to take out the off, the outer wheels and brake assemblies. We had about an inch and a half of clearance. And that was about it. And we cut the wings off, uh, just outboard of the main landing gear, but at wing station 112. And, uh, we rolled, we rolled it in. And one C5 was moving the engine nacelles and outer wing panels and this uh, number, uh, and the main fuselage with me in it, uh, was in the other C5. So we left, uh, we left Travis and we left Palmdale. We headed to Travis and spent the night. They didn't have fuel for us at uh, Palmdale. Next morning we got up. Uh, we head on out. We're about out about 45 minutes and the E9, the chief is going to go down, check the load. I said, can I go down with you? And he said, well, normally I would say no, but since this is your project, sure. So we went down, uh, I, uh, he, was, he was making sure everything was, was uh, tight. Nothing had loosened up uh, when we took off. So I climbed up in the landing gear, walked down the chines. I had the canopy blocked open with a wheel chock. I had a five-gallon bucket on the ejection seat that was all the way down. I had a cushion on top of that. I get into the, can the cockpit, and I close the canopy, and I'm in there for about 45 minutes. And I'm just, I mean, I'm just, I'm like a, a kid in a candy store. I'm in the world's fastest operational airplane. I'm inside another airplane, but I'm, I'm in the cockpit. I'm in the air. So all of a sudden, there was a wrap on the bottom after about 45 minutes. Yeah, we got to go up. So I went back up. Now we're coming in our, we're just starting our final descent into Minneapolis. And the chief says, the boss said, you can be in the, in the cockpit when we land. So I'm already at the front end of the C5 where the cockpit is, because there's also a, uh, a passenger area behind the wing box. He said, no, downstairs. So I was actually in the airplane when it landed in Minneapolis. This is on uh, the 28th of October, 1990. 1990. Yeah. And uh, I was 91. I, I forget now. But 
so I, when we, once we landed, I called Ben Rich. And I said, Ben, I think I've done something with the Blackbird program that no one else can say. And he said, what's that? And I said, I'm the only person on the planet to be in the cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane, and I landed it. He, he said he laughed so hard, he said, I almost wet my pants. <laughs> so that that's you know that's that's a blackbird uh uh record that no absolutely no one will ever be able to beat. <laughs> that's a good one. So this oh, go ahead, Gary. I was gonna say, um you gotta wrap it up. Yep. <laughs> I have to work tomorrow. <laughs> I think this is just uh this is great. This is just fun. us winging it for everyone listening. These are the this best is, episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah, think we so, did pretty good, Jim. Yeah, it was an hour, hour and 48 minutes or 43 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, so, yeah. yeah. Gary, so, do you want to do your outro? Yep. Oh, well, we, we, well we, first, we, um, where can oh, people find yeah. your find you, Jim? Okay. I'm. Uh, everybody said, where's your website? And I said, look, I, I waste enough time on, on computers as it is. I'm retired. Uh, but if you want my, if you want to see my books, uh, the Air Force Museum handles them. A lot of uh, anywhere you have a Blackbird on display, they they may have my books. But uh, go into Amazon, punch in books by James, middle initial C, Goodall, just like it sounds, G O O D A L L, and they'll come up. And I have uh, now some of them are out of print. But my my gems, all my hardbound books are all my recent books. So I have uh, uh, pictorial history on the Los Angeles class uh, fast attacks. It's a it's a 160 pages, all color, uh, inside and outside of both the 6088 and 6088. 88i and I have I cover know your your adversary so I have the the Russians the Chinese the North Koreans Iranian subs and then volume two is the Virginia Sea uh, Sea Wolf class and I cover uh, the NR one which was the uh, Navy reactor one that was the a crew of eleven it go down to three thousand I heard some rumblings that even down to six thousand feet. And uh, the crew is, I mean, it's the smallest nuclear power submarine ever, ever built. I think it was 76. Uh, now, I don't know. I, I won't, I won't quote what the, what the length was, but it was very short. It was small. It was a, it was a baby submarine and a crew of 11. And I know a guy who was on, who was on the NR1. I said, well, how long can you stay down? He said, typically no more than 30 days. I said, well, why is that? You have a nuclear reactor. You can make water and, uh, just you know, can you carry enough food? And I said, no, it's the porta potty. Hmm. I said, what do you mean? They said we don't have a way to flush it. They didn't put that into the the design, so we have a porta potty, and when it's full, hmm. we have to surface. <laughs> so, and and when they come back, they said they're, they're you know they're you know they're pretty they're pretty uh, stinky <laughs> when they when they come back. Uh, so it's really now that thing has been just been dismantled, but the uh, 
the con and everything of, or for the NR1 is at the uh, Naval uh, Submarine Museum uh, there in uh, Connecticut, near, near Quonset, uh, Quonset Point, I think. Wherever the Nautilus is located there in uh, New England. There's a, they have a museum there and they have the, uh, you know, the complete uh, bridge that was used on the NR1 uh, is there for the public to see. And it was a, it was a tiny little uh, experimental uh, sub that did things that you weren't supposed to be able to do. It can retrieve stuff. Well, we had an F-14, uh, had a cold uh, cat and the, the airplane, you know, the pilot had, the pilots had to, Guys had to eject, and the airplane sunk, and I don't in real deep water, and it had uh, a number of Phoenix missiles on it. And it, and back then, this back then the Phoenix was very very classified. So they you know they weren't they weren't worried about the F fourteen because we're it's down below where the the Soviet Union at the time didn't have the capability of recovering it. But they wanted, you know, they went down and they recovered the, uh, you know, the AIM 40, the AIM 54 Phoenix missiles and, uh, recovered those. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's almost all of the, uh, uh, various operations at the NR1 was on were classified, even though it was considered just a research sub and really had no classified mission, which was bull. But, uh, and then my, I'm waiting to get on an SSGN, uh, one of the four Ohio boats they converted to an Arsenal boat. I have the, the C4 and the D5 boats covered from, I have full coverage from the reactor room bulkhead forward. And I have that in all the submarines, the Los Angeles class, the 688Is, the Seawolf Virginia class, and uh, the Ohio boats. I'm just waiting now to, you know, to get to either Kings Bay or Bangor to shoot the SSGNs. And then volume three will be done. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah. Well, I'll put a link to your books on Amazon. And right. notice this episode. It's been a great pleasure having you. I hope we do it yeah. again. And oh, absolutely. Enjoy it. Absolutely. I, I, I enjoy it. And uh, again, uh, uh, you know, Jared, Jared and I are, are heading towards the adventure of a lifetime. Uh, it's coming up. And thank God he didn't die on me. He tried to, but... Uh, he reminds me every chance he gets. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If we're lucky, Jim, Gary's going to be there for some of this. Or yes, all of it. Yes, next trip I hope to be with you guys. Oh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, uh, I had 28 to 50 years age over everybody else that was on the, in the group. We had 10 of us. And the second oldest was uh, the guy who decided to die on me here Memorial Day. Damn it! Uh, he and, came back. Uh, He's fine. And I had twenty. I had twenty-eight years on him. <laughs> I know. But, but I had fifty. Years, I had. But I had fifty years on Michaela. So. <laughs> hey, we got to wrap things up. Wrap yeah. it up. <laughs> no, thanks. So. It's been fun. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Hang on for one moment. I'm just going to play the outro. All right. It was a real pleasure. And yeah. Th thanks for having me on. And Jared, you look good. And this this is your this is your first uh, thing since since you died, right? No, he's done a couple. Oh yeah, I've done a few. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've done three now. Oh, good. Good. So.
He's you all take care and have a wonderful, wonderful He's weekend right. coming up. You too. Thanks. Yep. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. Loved what you listened to today. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.